Heavenly Father, as we do approach your word today, we ask that you might accomplish that very thing that your word says it will do. It does your will, and it never returns void. And so the work that it will do this morning in our lives is important to us. And as we gather ourselves together around your feet and ask you to teach us today, we do so not only as your children, but also as your servants. For we must know, and we must do. These are the proper responses to this great book that you've given to us. This is an important time for us as we open it up and we pray that your will might be done. And we give you the glory and the honor for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. So we continue our study of the internal battlefield. On sermon number 3, we have already looked at our mandate in verse 16. And we have looked at our enemy in verse 16, where it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Today we're going to talk about the fork in the road. The fork in the road. The old joke is, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. (laughs) What, What do we mean when we say there's a fork in the road? Uh, Obviously, the the road is now split into other directions. Many times, the options are just two. There are some places where there's many different directions that are given to us as options. But let's say that we talk about two. You come to a fork in the road, obviously, you choose one and you cannot be on both. To go to one direction means that you're not on the other direction. The main point of our study here in Galatians 5 is that we are to walk by the Spirit. As we saw that earlier, we see it again in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. If we do so, he says, Paul, as he writes here, we will not be carrying out the desires of the flesh. Because you cannot do both. You cannot walk by the Spirit and do the desires of the flesh. Now, we sometimes pretend that we walk by the Spirit while we do the desires of the flesh, but in reality, you cannot. To walk by the Spirit means you cannot do the desires of the flesh. And to walk by the flesh means you cannot do the desire of the Spirit. We will get to this eventually, but these two do not cooperate. They do not go the same direction. It's impossible to be on both. But as we develop our understanding here, we need to get a view of the two different directions that are spoken of in this passage. And I'm going to just use that today in the concept, in that we stand at the fork of the road, and we look to where they lead. Today I'm going to talk about the fork to the left, 
No. I didn't choose left in the concept that here I am, it's a pulpit, and everyone on the left is representative of this view. All right? It just has to be, I, I could say the balcony people or the down below people, the upper and the lowers, but I'm not going to do that either. Uh, nor am I talking political when I say the left or the right, okay? It's just a concept where you come to a road and you either turn left or right. That's all I'm going to do. It just so happens when I say left, I always wave this arm. And you guys might start to feel a little worried about that. Uh, because next week maybe everyone will sit on this side when I talk about the right. But uh, we, we say these pictures so that we can visualize them. Uh, I prefer to call the fork on the right the right direction. I just like it that way because anything else is left, right? So we've got the left and we've got the right. And so I'm going to look at it this way. The fork to the left in my illustration is the road of the flesh. All right? The road of the flesh, the fork to the left. Now remember, as we saw this last week, the flesh is in opposition to God. It is in opposition to God. It says so so clearly in verse number 17 that the flesh is in opposition to the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God. The flesh is in opposition to God. The flesh asserts self. It does things its own way, its own wisdom, its own power, its own will for its own glory. It promotes self and makes it king. And all other things are a threat to its throne. That's the nature of the flesh. We talked about that a little bit last week. Let's look at verses 13 through 15 today. It says, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. This is the section we're going to use. I'm going to encourage you today, since we stand at the fork, look down that left road. Take a look at Down the road, in your mind, and what do you see? First of all, in verse 13, it says, it's possible to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, maybe it's important to start right there and understand, what does he mean by freedom? Uh, And why is that something that the flesh takes advantage of? Well, let's just do a quick scan of this book. Chapter number one, just back up with me. It's not a a great extensive thing or exhaustive thing. But nevertheless, chapter number one, when Paul begins to write, of course he addresses himself, Paul an apostle, not from men or through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ of God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us 
from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Now, if he's calling them the churches of Galatia, is there an assumption here that they are saved individuals? He doesn't use that word carelessly, does he? When he talks about churches. These are believers. that he, He's writing to believers. So we start with that to understand something as we work our way through the passage. Verse number 3, Paul states the freedom we have in Christ. 3, 4, and 5. Grace to you, peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might what? Rescue us, right? Rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Rescued. Starts with the freedom we have. It is in Jesus Christ, accomplished by his work to free us from our sins. We can see that. We also see an amazing thing, as Paul writes in verse number 6. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for another gospel. Paul's amazement. They're choosing an alternate direction. How can that be? You've been set free. Why are you doing this? He, He doesn't understand why they would do that. He goes on to say, which is not... Really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you, want to distort the gospel of Christ. And even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel, contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Those are strong words. But Paul says, you're being influenced by somebody to turn off this path and to walk down that path. And it alarms him, it amazes him that that would be the case. Now, to illustrate that, he carries that theme throughout this book. But to illustrate that, he uses several examples. One is the difference between being free and being a slave. And he talks that through, especially in chapter 3. So let's move over there for a minute. Chapter 3, he associates the flesh with the law, first off. In chapter 3, he says in verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whom, whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the one thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? There it is. This is what they have been told, and this is what they have bought in their minds, and this is the direction they started to walk down, in that they now had to perfect their lives through the flesh. Bring on the law! Give us things to do, checklists to fill out, to say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, so I must be right. They've lost sight of the fact that Christ has set them free. He makes the association of righteousness with Abraham in verse number 6. He says, even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. A simple thing, belief that brought righteousness, not works. Belief brought righteousness. And then he makes the contrast still. 
that those who try to fulfill the law are really under a curse. Chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. My friends, if you want to go with the checklist, you miss one and you're under the curse. That's what he's saying. Matter of fact, James even points it out this way. He who does the law and misses in one point, he has broken all of them. We have this problem, don't we? You want to go by the law, you also get the results of the law. There's a curse for those who can't keep it. You know what the reality is? All has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of us can even keep the law? No one can. We can't do it. Do you really want to live by that system then? He says, I set you free. Why do you want to go back under it? Why do you want to live like that? It says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. You have to insert right there at that comma. Praise the Lord. He having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. These are good words. So he's made that picture. And then he moves from that, he contrasts the picture of a son to that of a slave. A son to a slave. And he goes into chapter 4 with this picture. And he says, well, it goes all the way through here. But especially, look at verse 3 through 6. So, also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under, under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might... Redeem. You see it again? This is his point all the way through. He has redeemed those who were under the law. That we might receive the adoption of sons because you are sons. God has sent forth his spirit in our, of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son and a son and heir through God. He makes that point. Underscore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Because Christ redeemed us. So he raises this question. This question. It's a big one. In verse 9 through verse number 11. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years and I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Can you see his heart crying out as he writes to these folks? He says, you've been set free. Why do you want to go back under that again? They're standing at that fork. They're heading down that path. He worries. He pleads. Says, don't go there. Don't go there. 
chapter 5. It was for freedom, he says in verse 1, that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. And do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go there. He says again in verse 7 of chapter 5, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you, but a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. You see, there's another voice calling, isn't there? It's standing over on that left road and it's saying, Come this way. Come this way. All you need to do is bring your flesh. <laughs> or just engage that thing and, and you'll see. When you do it your way, by your wisdom, when you do it by your power, when you do it by your will, it's something you're going to be satisfied in. And that voice cries out, here's your checklist. Let's live it! They're calling them to what the world would call freedom. Well, Paul calls it bondage. Do you hear Paul pleading on the other path? No, don't go down that road. Come this way. Come this way. Down this road. Verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. He's pleading. If you want a similar picture, go to Proverbs chapter 1. There was that foolish man walking down the street, and from two separate corners, there's voices crying out for him. There's a corner that uh, uh, says, wow, let's come together. Let, let's throw our lot in together, and let's live this up. And the foolish one hears those words. And then on the other corner, there's a voice of wisdom shouting out, turn to me, turn to me, and I'll pour out my spirit on you. And he stands at the fork. How often does God call to us when we're standing there? You know, it's an amazing thing. He shouts to us. He says, even when we have chosen the wrong road, he'll say, come to me and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they can be as wool. Where are you going to find another God who you can offend so easily that would still offer you mercy? But he does. Over and over and over again, his voice is heard. Follow this way. Come this way. And I will cleanse you and I will give you freedom and you can walk in my way. But here it sits in verse 13. The opportunity for the flesh. The opportunity sits right there. I found it interesting when I did a little research on that word opportunity. It literally means the starting point. It's, it's sometimes translated the occasion of the flesh. But it's a starting point. There's two words here. Apo is off. And hormara or hamaro is the word to start. To start off. Is the idea. And really it's kind of interesting because it's more intense than what we just look at it as. It's just 
urge something on or to urge something on or to dash or to plunge or to rush or even run violently that direction. It's like the starting line of a race. When I was in junior high, I ran in the cross-country team, and uh, I don't know why. some reason, I signed up three years in a row, and I still don't even know why I did that. Uh, but I do recall standing on the starting line, and when that gun went off, I ran. It scared me. Every time I knew it was coming anyway. But the sound of it just triggered something, and boom, I was off. I was running violently. You don't run violently at the start of a cross-country race, by the way. That's why I was always the last one in as well. I used up everything I had in the first 20 yards. Scared me to death. But this is a picture of one, if you will. It's kind of interesting. They're standing at the line, and this race is set before them. And off they go. The flesh is inspiring them. Do it your way. It's shouting it. Use your strength. It's shouting it. Go by your way, your will. It's for your glory. And it's cheering them on. The NIV writes of it as indulging in the flesh. The Amplified Version, I like this one. Only do not let your freedom be an incentive to your flesh and an opportunity or excuse for selfishness. I said, ooh. It's pretty pronounced when you say it that way. Uh, Kenneth Weiss, in his Greek translation, he put it into English. uh, He calls it, don't use the flesh as your base of operation. I said, hmm, there's another thought too. What is this that we're rushing into? That we're, we're plunging in and running violently toward? Let's just look down the road. Stop and look down the road. The opportunity that the flesh is offering. Do you know what it's contrasted with? It says in verse 13. It's contrasted with lovingly serving one another. Interesting contrast, isn't it? What is the difference? If if one loves one another, what do you think the contrast would be? Well, you could either say hating one another or loving myself, right? Either one is something the flesh desires to do. He says, you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Let me talk about the behavior for a minute. The behavior of the one who is running down this road. This is very revealing. Very revealing. Verse number 15 says this. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Bite and devour. I have an illustration that was lived out for me this past week. Josh brought home a dog. A tank. That's his name. His name is Tank, and it fits. It's a huge animal. First, my introduction to this animal. I walked out into the backyard... It stood on its back legs, put its paws on my arm, and looked me in the eyes. It's a big dog. So it sits out in the backyard with Pepper. I always thought Pepper was a big dog, a black lab that was only a puppy and still getting quite tall herself. 
And she looks dwarfed next to this dog. And these two are out in the backyard together. The first food bowl incident was very revealing. You bring out the food and you set it down. And it doesn't take long to establish the dominant animal here. When you outweigh the little black dog by twice the amount, and you're the size of tank, the fight doesn't last long. It's violent for a few seconds. And there's biting and tearing and everything else. And then Pepper walks away. And Tank eats. Now what I found very interesting, because I watched this for a good half hour or more, I just had to see what was going to happen. Tank would take two bites. And then he'd just kind of wander back over and sit down next to Pepper. And Pepper said, my chance. And so she starts to get up and walk over to the food dish as Tank gets up and starts walking next to her. And she got the cue pretty quickly that this was not going to be pretty. And so she would just kind of turn to the right a little bit and head to the water trough, as we have it, and she'd drink. As if that was her whole, whole intention. I'm just getting a drink. So he'd go sit down and she'd see that, and she'd say, now's my chance. And so off she goes back to the food dish, and he gets up and starts walking that way, and she decides she needs another drink. And it went on and on the same procedure over and over. That dog was sloshing when it walked. It was so full of water. You can hear it. Because she just had to keep going for the water, going for the water. She wasn't going to get the food. Because Tank had a bite that she found out. It was an interesting picture to watch, really. So how do we solve that? <laughs> we feed Pepper on the inside right now. You see, some approach the challenges of self with brawn. Some with brains. But both want the same thing. They want the same thing. Now, I can tell you how often this shows up in church fellowships, too. All over the place, there are issues like this. I was part of an organization that we went into rescue churches. And the majority of the rescue jobs that we had to do was because they were biting and devouring one another. And how do you stop them? There was one church especially good at it, and believe it or not, its name was the Toxin Church of Faith. It was spelled different, <laughs> but that's the exact pronunciation of the word. And you stop and say, ooh, bite and devour, bite and devour. We who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ somehow keep choosing that road. We start up our flesh. And we run full steam to see what we can get, regardless of who we bite and devour. I told you, he wrote this to believers. In church history, I, I don't know over the course of the 2,000 years that we could look at, if there's any more era, more graphic of this than that in the 1500s. The 1500s, we call it the Reformation era. 
But what was supposed to be the church became a self-seeking, biting, devouring clan who chose to defend their own throne against any who sought to reform it. We go back to Mary I of England. We gave her a nickname over the years. Bloody Mary. She reigned a mere five years in the middle of that century, 1553, 1558. She managed to put to death 280 or more but at least 280 religious dissenters. That's the term they gave to them. Literally, they were the Protestants. They were the martyrs who she had burned at the stake because she was defending the church. Among them was a man by the name of John Bradford. Now, there's a lot of Bradfords in church history. Right? But this, this individual had served as a pastor for only a few years. I don't even believe he went beyond five years as a pastor. But when the Catholic Church came into his community and forced his church to accept one of their bishops as one who stood in Bradford's stead, the congregation was quite upset. To keep them calm, while the bishop stood in the pulpit doing what he did, Bradford would stand behind him so that the people would not start a riot. At one point, somebody threw a dagger, and Bradford stood up between the crowd and that bishop to protect him and ushered him out to his safety. And do you know what his reward was? Bradford was arrested for fostering an attempt on the bishop's life. And Queen Mary and her group saw to it that Bradford was burned at the stake for that. Even an act of Christian love on Bradford's part, which, which was construed as an attack, because that's the way the flesh always sees things, by the way, Every other view is against me because it's promoting self. And they saw his act of love as an attack and a threat to itself, and so they bit and they devoured. Paul had the same problem with the Judaizers in his day. That's the background to the book of Galatians, by the way. Paul went into Galatia. He went to those churches that were founded there. He, he was part of that whole procedure. And the Jews were jealous. They were jealous of what was accomplished there. And they entered into these congregations, biting and devouring. And it wasn't long until the church learned to bite and devour too. And they learned that pattern. And that's what we're reading of today in Galatians chapter 5. Biting and devouring. How do I know that? Well, here's a simple Greek text of verse number 15. Since you are biting one another and devouring, what does that word since imply to you? They are doing it. He says, you must, be, you must keep on looking out at one another because you might be consumed in one swallow. Now, I insert that. In one swallow. It's the idea of what we call an heiress 
passive, subjunctive. Sounds real technical. But what that means is, if you like it that way, it's just a big swallow. One act that sucks you in. You will be consumed, he says, in one act. Like that. Is that graphic enough yet? When you look down that road, and you see that the characteristics of those who are on that road is that of the flesh. And the flesh does not have friends, folks. The flesh looks out for itself. It promotes self. And it will bite. And it will devour. And it will swallow whatever is a threat to it. We look down the road to that left. And do you see a path of sweetness? Do you see a path uh, of care for others? Do you see the the blossoms of Christ-like love growing up along the trail? Do you feel some gentle breeze of the life in harmony with the Holy Spirit as they walk? Do you get the balm of comfort for your bites and your scratches or your tears? Do you feel obligated to walk by the Spirit when you're walking down such a path? Do you even sense your own debt to a gracious God when you're on such a path? And folks, we are in debt to Him. There's a good comment uh, written out by Spurgeon in the morning and evening devotional back just a few days ago on the 22nd. And I had to put the words into words that we work with today instead of thy and thine and such. I turned it to you and and words like that, but this is what he wrote. O believer, learn to reject pride, seeing that you have no ground for it. Whatever you are, you have nothing to make yourself proud. The more you have, the more you are in debt to God. And you shouldn't be proud of that which renders you a debtor. Consider your origin. Look back where you were. Consider what you would have been but for divine grace. Look upon yourself as you are now. Doesn't your conscience reproach you? Doesn't your thought-wandering stand before you and tell you that you are unworthy to be called his son? And if he has made you anything, are you not taught thereby that it is grace which has made you to differ? Great believer, you would have been a great sinner if God had not made you different. Oh, you who are valiant for truth, you would have been valiant for error if grace had not laid hold upon you. Therefore, do not be proud. Though you have a large estate, a wide domain of grace, you hadn't once a single thing to call your own except your sin and your misery. Oh, strange infatuation that you, who have borrowed everything, should think of exalting yourself, a poor dependent pensioner, upon the bounty of your Savior, one who has a life which dies without fresh streams of life from Jesus, and yet is proud. That's an alarming phrase all the way through here. The reality is we are debtors to God, aren't we? Look down that path again. Do you see a humble man on that evil route? Do you find a gracious man 
on that path of the flesh? Do you find kind and loving people walking beside you on that path? Do you find the merciful man walking down that path? Go ahead, look. Look down the road. They bite and they devour, he says. Tell me that's the happy road. Tell me that's the one that really satisfies the believer. Those who tend to walk down that way thinking they found greener meadows. When the Spirit does His work, they come back. They're hurting. They've been bitten. They've been devoured. For even those who bite and devour will someday be bitten themselves. That's what that path offers. I don't like that view. And neither do you. But that is what it is. So stop for a moment at the fork in that road. Consider the path that you choose. I did not describe for you a leisurely walk in the park. I described a battlefield. It's a battlefield. And according to this passage, it is within us. So here we have our instruction. Walk by the Spirit, verse 16 says. All other steps are steps of the flesh. Steps of the flesh. So how are we walking today? Which path are we walking today? Challenging, isn't it? It's going to take a little searching now to ask yourself. And you say, well, how do I know, Pastor, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm walking down this path of the flesh? Have you bitten somebody this morning? When I was young, of course, we as children, we, we learn not to do things because we get in trouble for them, right? And uh, my brother once, we were looking into the uh, fish tank. I was very young, but I remember this. My brother, a little bit younger than I, we were both looking at the fish, and he bit me. Why? I don't know. Kids have to find something to do, and he bit me. And, of course, I'm being a good big brother. I start to scream and yell and get my mom's attention. And she came around, and she found out he bit me. So she grabbed his arm and bit him. He never bit again. It was an amazing thing, but I remember that so visually. See, my mom's teeth come down around his arm, and you say, well, that's not the way you're supposed to do it anymore. Those who bite get bitten. Have you been biting this morning? You've been biting this past week? People walking a big loop around you when they come into the room? Because they're afraid of how you're going to respond? How you're going to act? Ask yourself, why am I this way? Who's sitting as king right now inside of me? Whose will am I following? Whose way? Whose wisdom? Whose power am I asserting here? Is it my flesh? Myself? Well, watch folks, because when you do that, you start biting. You start devouring. There's your indicator. If you're on that path, that's what you do. And if you're on that path, you still have a gracious Lord who says, come to me. Come to me. 
You're thirsty? I'll give you something to drink. Hungry? I'll give you something to eat. Come to me. Your sins are scarlet. I can make them white as snow. They're red like crimson. I'll make them as wool. He's got an invitation for his children, doesn't he? He doesn't abandon us on that path. He doesn't say, all right, just go your way. He calls. He pleads. He pulls. He forgives. He forgives. Maybe we need to talk to him. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning because we are convicted by such passages. This one convicts us. I can't imagine any of us would stand up today and say we've never walked down such a path. But since we are familiar with it, none of these things we've thought this morning were new. We have not only your word that tells us this is true, but we also have the experience. We have the scars, and we've given scars. We come before our holy God, our merciful God, our gracious God, our loving God, our kind and patient God, and say thank you for Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed that we might be forgiven of our sins, You give us the opportunity to stand in our freedom. You give us the opportunity to walk by the Spirit. And this is a challenge for us, dear Lord, because it strikes against everything our flesh is saying and wanting and doing. But we come before you today because we have a great need. And our need is to walk by the Spirit. And as you do your great work in our heart, may this become more than just a habit. May it become the longing of our hearts. May it become the desire of ourself that we walk by the Spirit. Do your great work in our midst, Lord. We need it desperately. And you're the only one that can change us. Thank you for what you're doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.